We're going to be in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now we're switching. <laughs> Those are good things. Think about them. But now we're going to Ephesians 4, 17 to the end of the chapter. Um, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off the old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share if anyone in, with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion. That, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Jonathan? Yeah, go good. <laughs> <laughs> Has anyone heard of John Gottman or the Gottman Institute? Hello, hands. If you've read a marriage book or uh, been to a marriage conference, you are probably somewhat familiar with the Gottmans or the Gottman Institute or the things that they have done. If you're not, though, well, then it is important to begin maybe at the beginning of the Gottmans. They are famous for their, uh, their ability to predict relational outcomes. And then for the research that came out of that and the research that came before that, and then for the different ways that that has then shaped their marital advice. But it all began in 1986 with an experiment that media dubbed, which I feel like this is the most 1986 thing possible, the Love Lab. And in that moment, right, doesn't that just feel like so 1986? And in that moment, John Gottman, he's a researcher, and he's trying to figure out, okay, like, how do healthy marriages work? How do healthy relationships work? Are there predictors for a healthy relationship and unhealthy relationships? And so John Gottman and his research partner, Robert Levinson, they gathered hundreds of newlyweds on the campus of the University of Washington. They put them into, like, an apartment setting, they hooked them up to electrodes 
which I feel like that's also a very 1980s thing. We're like really interested in hooking people up to mechanical equipment in the 80s and doing questionable research on them. I don't know what that was, but so they, they bring them into an apartment setting, they hook them up to electrodes, and then they put them in like conflict situations. So they're having conflict conversations, walking through difficult moments in their relationship, talking about finances, talking about raising kids, just things that normally produce a level of conflict in relationship. And as that was happening, they measured their like psychological outputs. So some of the electrodes measured like heart rates, blood pressure, skin conductivity, if they were like sweating or their palms were getting sweaty, which I feel like if you hooked me up to an electrode, I would just be sweating. So I feel like that's a little misleading. And so they measured all of these features as they were having conflict. And then they followed up with the couples six years later to see like, is there some kind of connection between what we measured in this moment and where they are now. And they found there was. There was a correlation between some of the measures they found six years previously and those couples that they are now seeing. And so for one of the things they found is that if you were having conflict and there was this high level of like psychological intensity, like if you were in your fight or flight mind, in that first research experiment, you are more likely to not be together six years later. But if you had a low level of psychological intensity when you were having these conversations, like if you weren't sweating and if you weren't having high blood pressure and you were not in fight or flight, then you are more likely to still be together. So that was interesting. But John was like, you know what? That's not enough information. I need to know what is really happening in that kind of interaction. So then in 1990, they were like, we're going to invite a bunch of new couples together, and we're going to do an even more kind of like serious research on what's happening in that first interaction. So they bring 130 couples together. Again, they hook them up with the electrodes. They put them in like a fake bed and breakfast, again, on the campus of Washington, and they watched. And what John Gottman noticed is that throughout interactions that couples are having, he's like, they're making what he called bids for one another like bids for connection. So they're trying to connect with one another, and the way that you respond to those bids is actually very helpful for understanding whether a marriage or a relationship will be successful. And these bids, they're simple, they're small, they're like small gestures or invitations for connection. So put your mind in the 90s, this is 1990, maybe you're with your couple, you're with your spouse, your, your significant other, you're sitting in this bed and breakfast, and you'd be like, you know what? I'm going to make a bid for connection. So you might be like, Honey, I'm a huge Paula Abdul fan. It's way bigger than the 90s. Now, your spouse has an option. <laughs> the joke's a real slow burn. And now your, your spouse has a, has a couple of ways that they can respond to you. Like, your spouse could just ignore you altogether, like continue reading the newspaper, and that would be a negative response to the bid for connection. Or like a more positive connection could be your spouse puts down the newspaper, looks at you, and is like, you know, I love Paula Abdul, but I think I'm really digging Mariah Carey's brand new album. His debut album came out in 1990. I had to like research 1990 facts. That's what I actually spent most of my sermon doing, being like, huh. Right? You might, I'm going to do another one. You might be in that moment, and you'd be like, you know what? GM just released a brand new line of cars 
called Saturn, and I think I'm going to buy one. And your spouse has a way of engaging with you. Your spouse can ignore that comment or be like, you know, honey, I don't think Saturn's going to last. And that would be a successful bid for connection. And so as the Gottmans were watching these different kinds of interactions, they realized that if you responded positively, that had a positive correlation to your success in marriage. And so the couples who were still together six years later, again, when they did this research, on average, had a positive response to those kinds of bids of nine out of 10. So in an interaction that they're having in this fake bed and breakfast, if you responded to bids of connection nine out of 10 times, you were, those are good indicators that your marriage is going to last for six years. Couples who were not together had a bid range of around three out of 10. They responded negatively or did not respond at all to the bids and connections for the invitations for connection. And what the Gottmans determined out of this research is that really the, the basic premise of marriage, the thing that will, that will make successful relationships is actually very simple. It is that kindness is actually the best determinant for marital success. Because they were like, kindness glues couples together. It has this kind of reciprocal effect. When someone makes an invitation to you and you respond kindly, it actually produces kindness and it begins to glue couples together and create some kind of reciprocal kindness equation. They were like, that's really, at the end of the day, the best test we have for understanding the success for marriage is if people are just kind to one another. if they assume the best of one another, if they respond to one another's very basic, simple invitations for connection, if they are kind, there's a good chance they'll succeed. I think at some level, all of us know that or assume that to be true. We intuit that to be true, that kindness is necessary for healthy human relationships. And I also think that we know that like in terms of marriage and, and friendships, but I also think that we know that's true like in a more global level, that, that our world runs on kindness at some level, or at its best, it can run on kindness. And I think we also kind of intuit that though kindness is necessary for human relationships, we also know that our world seems to be experiencing a bit of a kindness deficit. When I was prepping this message, I just Googled the word kindness. This is how you Google. I just Googled the word kindness, and the things that came up were just multiple organizations that whole, their whole purpose is spreading kindness or teaching kindness, teaching people to be kind to themselves, teaching people to be kind to others, like encouraging random acts of kindness. When I got on social media, almost every time I get on social media, I see like some encouraging video of a, of a person like adopting like an abandoned animal and being kind to them and watching the transformation. It's like we know that we need kindness and that our world is actually desperately in need of kindness. But what does that mean for followers of Jesus? Because I feel like that's a cultural conversation we're having, is that our world needs kindness, our world runs on kindness, marriages need kindness, like all of these things. But what does that mean for followers of Jesus? 
What does the world's need for kindness say to us? Because this is just maybe a confession. I don't know that I often think about kindness as being a component to my faith as being essential to being a follower of Jesus, as being like a part of my reality as followers of Jesus. Like when I think about God or I think about faith or I think about following Jesus, just the first word that comes to my mind is not kindness. I'll talk about holiness, which is good and right. I'll talk about sin. I'll talk about grace. I'll talk about hope. I'll talk about love. But I don't know that I often think about kindness as being a part of following Jesus. And yet as we're listing out the fruit of the Spirit, Paul says that kindness is an essential mark of followers of Jesus. That it is part of what happens as people are experiencing like the goodness of God and as they're following God and as they're practicing their faith, that kindness is a practice and a fruit and a reality of followers of Jesus. For him, it's right there. Love, peace, patience, joy, kindness. So what does kindness mean for us as followers of Jesus? Is it the same as kindness we see it culturally? How does it shape our faith? How does it speak to our faith? What does it mean for us to be a people of kindness? And so to to answer that question, I was thinking it would just be helpful to do some research. Like, what is kindness according to our faith? And so I looked up some different, like, theological definitions of kindness. And one that I found was, pretty simple. It was just providing something beneficial. That kindness is providing something beneficial to others. Feels helpful. Another one was the quality of compassion and generosity. So kindness is this quality of of compassion and generosity. Sometimes in the Old Testament, the word that is translated kindness is the word hesed, which we also use as faithfulness. So there's something about this like commitment. There's something about this like pursuit. There's something about God's nature as he's a pursuing, seeking God that is also connected to kindness. So as you think about those definitions, then just put them in your mind as you read this passage from Titus. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church and he says this. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared... He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So if you have those definitions in your mind, that it's the the provision of something beneficial, it is the quality of compassion and generosity, that it is something about faithfulness, like you have those definitions and then you put them in the context in this passage, it feels like it starts to, to, to push into something really deep. To push into something actually really significant. Especially because this passage says that kindness appears. You have this thing that God is doing, but it is also appearing. And what is it doing when it appears? He saved us. So we're like in heavy territory. This is not just some like manifestation or act of kindness. 
or some manifestation of generosity. Instead, Paul is saying that the ultimate kindness, the ultimate kind of kindness, the ultimate act of kindness is his appearing, meaning Jesus, who saved us not by works. So I feel like that pushes the definition of kindness into whole new territories. It is not simply compassionate acts, generous gestures, or something beneficial, though that is all true. Kindness, when God is being kind, is the generous and compassionate extension of God himself towards his people. It is God actually moving towards his people, giving of himself towards his people, appearing towards his people. And specifically in verse 5, it says it is his appearing towards us, saving us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So the kindness of God is most displayed as God extends himself towards us when it defies logic, when we are hostile towards him, when we dislike him, when we reject him, when we abandon him, when we are hostile towards God, his kindness is his moving towards us to save us despite those things. So if you were to put that together, then the kindness of God, it is the counterintuitive, generous, compassionate extension of himself towards us. It is his pursuit of us, his commitment towards us. That's what that Hebrew word has said. That's what it loaded into that meaning. It's faithfulness. Sometimes it's translated loving kindness. And it's a dense word that's hard to always make out into English, but it carries that kind of that notion of continued pursuit, of continued presence, of continued withness but not simply out of obligation, out of love. Because God is kind. And I feel like this definition, if we, if we run it through kind of our own lens of Scripture, it starts to make sense. We see that God is always like this, that he's always doing this, that at every moment in the biblical narrative, he's pursuing and he is seeking and he is faithful, whether that's in the fall in Genesis 3 or with Abram in Genesis 12 or with the exile or with Jesus coming in the flesh and appearing at every moment, you see God extending himself towards his people. Despite the circumstances, despite the context, despite the culture, despite the climate, God is moving towards his people. There's another psychological term for this kind of work, which is that Jesus moves in a way that is non-complementary. Now, if you're, if you're like a theology buff, when you hear that word, you're probably like triggered because you're like, oh, that means a lot of things. Not thinking about it in that context. The idea in psychology, though, is basically that when we have an interaction, you and I have an interaction, we're going to kind of mimic each other's interactions. So like if you, you, know, you go to a store, check out at the clerk, and the clerk is kind to you, you will most likely respond similarly in a complimentary way, right? You will respond complimentarily to the kindness or the warmth or the coldness of the person there. 
That's true in basic, simple interactions. It's true in marriage. And it's true in even much larger and more substantial ways. That we tend to mimic the responses of others. Complimentary. I first learned about this idea when listening to a podcast called Invisibilia. And they were talking about this, this, this like little Danish town in 2012. And, and, and the moment is like super fascinating. It's 2012, and this little Danish town, the cops in this Danish town, they start getting a phone call from parents about having their kids have gone missing. And they get one, and they're like, oh, that's weird. Like, we should investigate that. And then they get another one, and then they get another one. And they just keep getting these phone calls. And so they start to, like, track out, like, what's happening and why is it happening? And they find that all of the phone calls are coming from Muslim communities in this Danish town. And as they just continue to follow the course, they realize, like, oh, the kids have not been kidnapped. They've left to go to Syria. This is 2012, so it's an interesting moment when we talk about like global terrorism in Syria. Like ISIS is forming, the refugee crisis is like beginning to flood people's social media feeds. So we're starting to think about it. And all over Europe, kids are leaving to go to Syria, and it becomes this like global crisis. And all the world is like, how do we respond to this problem? And so most of Western Europe, they respond complementarily. They revoke citizenship. They use intense rhetoric. But this little Danish town, they're like, you know what? We're going to try something different. We're going to send out a notice that anyone who has left can come home. And when they come home, we're going to actually get them a therapist. And we're going to try to get them back connected with their family. And if they don't have a job, we're actually going to try to get them a job. And if they were in school, we're going to try to get them back in school. We're going to try to connect them and integrate them into normal life. And as they began to roll this out, kids actually did begin to come home. But more importantly, all of a sudden, as everywhere else in Europe, the rate of kids leaving was skyrocketing. This like small Danish town was seeing the rates decrease. The media dubbed it, which I think is very funny, the hug a terrorist. But I feel like as Christians, we just call it gospel. Because this is what the kindness of God looks like. Like We abandoned him. We wrecked his home. We cursed his way. We decided that we wanted to do life without him. The Bible often uses the metaphor that we are enemies of God. And instead of responding complimentarily, saying, like, I can wield the hammer and destroy you, which he has every right to do, every single right to do, he instead says, I'm going to absorb into myself all of the hostility that you have brought onto the world so that I can bring you home. His kindness is non-complimentary. It does not act in the same way that we do. Instead, it is a hard disruption. That to our hostility, he offers grace. That to our sin, he offers mercy. To our cursing and our rebellion, he offers a welcome home. And it does something. That kind of kindness, it does something. In the Danish town, kids stopped leaving. The Gottmans found that in marriage, it made more kindness. And the Bible would say it this way, that God's kindness is meant to lead you 
to repentance. That there is something happening the more that we experience the kindness of God. It has like a disruptive effect in our own heart that God is at work in us, transforming us, changing us, doing something in us. And as that is happening, it actually makes room for God, that he's like making room for himself in us. That kindness has a reciprocal effect. It changes something about us. 1 John 4, 19 would say it this way, we love because he first loved us. That something is happening as we experience the kindness of God. That something is transforming us and changing us and at work in us. The writer Peter would say something really, really similar, which I love this moment. He would say, as you experience the goodness or the kindness of God, this is what happens. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like a newborn infant, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow into salvation. Indeed, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. And the word for good in that moment is the same word that we translate for kind. So grow into spiritual maturity if you have tasted that the Lord is kind. Like that if you know he is faithful and that you know he is with you and that you know that he is constantly pursuing you and that you know and are experiencing at the deepest, most like internal levels that God is always offering to you a home despite your sin and hostility, that leads to spiritual maturity. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is kind. So, Missio, do you know that God is kind? Do you believe that God is kind? That he responds to you in a way that is counterintuitive to your own actions, to your own habits, to your own propensities. Do you believe that God is kind? Do you believe that God is extending himself towards you to welcome you home? This is so much, I think, of what Christian discipleship looks like. It's knowing more and more that Jesus is kind. And then as we experience Jesus' kindness, God's kindness towards us, we grow into that kind of people. Because actually what God wants of his people is to be kind. If you look at Micah 6, verse 7 through 8, you get this kind of famous passage on what God wants his people to be. And it says, this is the prophet Micah speaking to the people of Israel. It says, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? It says, God has told you, O oh man, what is good? What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. 
The prophet Micah, in this moment, he's writing to the people of Israel, and they're in this season of prosperity and wealth and power. So things are going pretty well for them, but they are exploiting the poor, not caring for the people around them, not following out like the practices of God's way, while at the same time they are doing the religious things they're supposed to do. So Micah gives this indictment, saying, your religious gestures, they are empty to me. What we often attribute to maturity or to spirituality, he's like, those things are empty to me when they lack kindness. Because you as my people are not intended to be known simply by the religious gestures that you participate in. You are meant to be known by your loving of kindness. Paul says the same thing to the church in the New Testament. This is what Jonathan Sanderson read earlier. If you look at Ephesians 4, verse 17, it says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles or non-believers do, in the futility of their minds. Like there is something that's happening in followers of Jesus that is a, a, a radical transformation from what we have known before. So what is that transformation? Go to the end, verse 32, be kind to one another. And I love that he uses this word, tender-hearted. Be kind to one another and tender-hearted, loving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You are followers of Jesus. You're experiencing the kindness of Jesus. Therefore, be kind, tender-hearted. So how do we actually practice that? How do we actually practice the kindness of God? Well, I think the way that we see most often playing out in God's own work and what he calls us to do is through hospitality. Because it is the practice of extending ourselves, of opening ourselves up and making a home for others as we see God extending himself and making a home for others. For others. This is what God does all throughout his story. What happens when Adam and Eve wreck his world? Oh, God makes a new home. What happens after the Tower of Babel? Oh, God calls Abram into a, a relationship with him to make a home. What happens after the exile? God calls the people into a home. God is about making a home. And he's inviting us to participate in the same kind of kind work. As I was prepping this, there's a story in the Old Testament that I think is maybe the best possible illustration of this moment. It comes from 2 Samuel chapter 9. And it happens after David, who is, uh, you know, this like famous king in the Old Testament. And he's finally actually become king. So this is, you have this like journey for David to become king of Israel. And he's had an antagonist in that story, Saul, who was once his friend and his mentor, who has become his antagonist. And Saul had a son named Jonathan, and David and Jonathan were friends. And so you've had this, like, kind of this history, and things have gone really sad. Saul and Jonathan are dead, and David is king. And as he enters into his throneship, he asks, like, his advisors and his participants, and he's like, hey, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So they go looking. They're like, I don't know. 
We'll go find. Is there someone still connected to this household that David can show kindness to? So they go looking, and they find a forgotten son of Jonathan. It's a man who's been physically disabled because of injuries to his feet, so he's kind of been left behind, and with this like change of dynasty, he has been forgotten. And they find him, and David says this. He says to this son, he says, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore you to the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And this is how this moment ends, which I, think, I just think is one of the most beautiful moments. It says, so Jonathan's son ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. See, that is the gospel. The king of the universe has provided us a place at his table to eat like sons and daughters. We have been adopted into his family despite being sons of the enemy. Like that is the gospel story that we are welcome to his table to eat always. We do not deserve to be there, but God has extended himself towards us and made us the home. And like David, we are called to do the same thing, to participate in this kindness through hospitality, by welcoming people to our own table, people who never expected to be there. And the beautiful thing about this is we just kind of imagine what is possible. Like you go to the earliest church, and this is how the church grows so rapidly in the first century. It's because regular people are just practicing hospitality, extending themselves to their neighbors and their coworkers and even people who hate them. I want to read you this quote as we kind of close up. It's from Emperor Julian, Roman emperor who's watching what's happening with the Christians. And he says this. He says, Why do we not observe that it is their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and their pretend holiness of their lives that have done most to increase atheism. He's talking about Christianity. For it is disgraceful that the impious Galileans or Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. Teach those of our faith to have the same kind of contribution as those Christians. I love that. I feel like that's just such a good way for us to imagine What would it be like if we were a people who believed that God was kind and we practiced kindness with him? What would it be like? And so I believe that if we believed that God was kind, we would begin to experience the hospitality of our God. That we would know ourselves as welcomed, that we would know ourselves as wanted, that we would know that we have a seat at the table and that we get to eat at the seat of the king always. And that it would form us into a hospitable people who witness to the goodness and kindness of our king through our own participation. You see, this is what we practice as we come to this table. As we gather to break the bread, taste the cup, We are practicing, experiencing God's 
kindness, who provided a place for us at his table. So, Missy, as you come to this moment, here and now, would you wrestle with that question? Do you believe that God is kind? So, as you come to this table, would you wrestle right now? Do you believe that God is kind? And what would it mean if he was? Let's pray. God, we thank you that as we read your story, that though we often maybe ignore this idea or or miss it or haven't heard it a lot, that you are kind. And then we see it all the way throughout your narrative that you are kind to your people. Like David to Jonathan's son, you provide a space at your table. Comfort and tenderhearted. So Jesus, as we're here in this moment, as we hear your story, and as we sing with you, would we experience anew the reality of your kindness? Let that lead us to the table. And as we come and we practice experiencing your kindness, would we then leave a people shaped by kindness who would go into all the world and make a home? In your name we pray. Amen. Missy, when you're ready, we welcome you to the table. If you'd like someone to pray with you, there's people over here who'd love to pray with you, wrestle through that very question. If you're wrestling with, how do I experience the kindness of God? Go pray. And then again, as you come here, ask that question, do you believe that God is kind?